Welcome to the Steady On Podcast, where God's hard truth meets your hard story. I don't need to tell you that life gets hard. Life gets hard, really hard. But God's faithfulness is still active and alive in our hard. And these episodes are dedicated to remembering and claiming the promises of a faithful God. I'm your host, Angie Bauman. I'm a pastor and Bible teacher, founder of Steady On Ministries, and creator of the Step-by-Step Bible Study Method. But more than that, I'm a trauma and abuse survivor who carried a heavy weight of shame and worthlessness for many years, and I still struggle, but I live in much more freedom now because I know God through His Word and speak truth to the lies of the enemy with His Word. And that's what we do here. On Mondays, we take it in by studying the promises of God, and on Wednesdays, we live it out with teaching and testimony on the promises of God. So thank you for tuning in, my friend. You are the reason for this show. And I'm so very, very glad you are here. Let's get started. Welcome. Today, we're going to take it in with John 1, 12, using my step-by-step Bible study method. And you will find links to a study sheet as well as videos for the step-by-step masterclass in today's show notes if you'd like to learn more. John 1, 12 from the New Living Translation says this, But to all who believed him and accepted him, He gave the right to become children of God. The author of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John. He was one of the sons of a fisherman named Zebedee. He was a man who was passionate about following Jesus Christ. He was a man who had seen the miracles of Jesus firsthand and heard the anointed words that Jesus taught. He walked with Jesus. He followed him wholeheartedly. And he describes himself in John 21, 7 and 20 as the one whom Jesus loved. All of that information comes from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And as always, you'll find all the resources I use to put this episode together in today's show notes. From the Enduring Word Commentary, it says this about the Gospel of John. It says the Gospel of John was probably the last of the four written and written in view of what the previous three had already said. This is one reason why John's account of the life of Jesus is in many ways different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first three Gospels center on Jesus's ministry in Galilee. John centers his Gospel on what Jesus did and said in Jerusalem. On the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're known as synoptic Gospels, which means see together. And the first three Gospels present the life of Jesus in pretty much the same format. They focus more on what Jesus taught and did, and John focused more on who Jesus is. I encourage you to try to say synoptic three times fast together, right? Maybe you can do it better than I just did. The audience of the Gospel of John is the scattered Jewish people and other believers, The date written is approximately A.D. 80 to 85, though some commentators put it more like A.D. 50 to 55. The type of literature is an ancient historical biography, and the major themes are the person and work of Jesus, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and the end of the age. Chapter 1, where we're hanging out today, has 51 verses in it. The Enduring Word labels it, titles it, The Word and the Witness. And there are three main parts, the prologue, the testimony of John the Baptist, and the testimony of the first disciples. Our verse today is in the prologue, and we're in the section of the prologue that focuses on the receiving of the word. 
All right, so here it is one more time, John 1, 12 from the New Living Translation. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Step one is to choose our word, and our word today is right. The definition of right is a legal or moral entitlement, that which complies with justice or law or reason. Some opposites of the word right are things like prohibition or ban or outlawing or prevention or barring, disallowance, forbiddance, restriction, refusal. Those words make me feel something, even as I'm rattling them off right now. I am someone who has felt sometimes justifiably so and sometimes just from insecurity but I have felt locked out or pushed out or not welcome a variety of times. And so there's something about already as we begin to study this that means so much to me that I know I have the right as a child of God. I have the right to have a close relationship with God. I have the right to be in his presence. And I have that right not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because he says so. It's because who he is and because I have faith in him, he has granted me the right to be his child. And no one can take that away from me and no one can take it away from you. So even just as we start today, I just hope you can feel that like you have the right to be in relationship with him because he says so. Your father says so. That's my child. And no one can say anything different that carries any weight at all. So step two is to investigate. We divide that up into four parts. Part one is to compare our word in other translations. Here are some other ways that Bible translators state the word right. The King James says power. The Amplified says right, but then it adds the authority and the privilege. The Amplified Student Edition says authority. The CEB says he authorized, like it's his stamp of approval, right? The GNV says prerogative. And the message, I'm going to read the whole verse to you. The message says, but whoever did want him, who believed he was, who he claimed, and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves their child of God selves. So, so interesting that our faith in him, that our decision to believe in him, it changes us, yes, but it changes us into what we were originally created to be, right? We are created for connection with God. We are created for kinship with God. We are created for the inheritance that God provides. And when we have faith in him, we are able to claim We accept the right to claim exactly what he says we can claim. Part two of the investigate step is to research the original word. I love this part so much. So our Strong's number is G1849, and the Greek word is exousia, which means privilege, delegated influence, authority, jurisdiction, liberty, power, right, and strength. I also like that word liberty in there because it's like we have the right 
the privilege, the authority, and the freedom. I I think back to what I was just saying about feeling closed out, feeling rejected, feeling locked out sometimes. And there's a captivity in that. Uh, there's a anxiety in that. But if we claim the right to have full access to our father the way that he says we do, then there's a freedom in that. I don't have to be nervous about this. I don't have to wonder the ability to be close to him, to be important to him, to be valued by him is mine anytime I want it. That is mine. It's my right and it's my freedom because, again, because he says so. The Greek word is from another Greek word, G1832, in the sense of ability. It is right through the figurative idea of being out in public, be lawful. I think this idea of being out in public, too, says not only is she mine, but I'm so proud she's mine that I want everybody to know it. Gosh, doesn't that feel great? She's mine, and I'm so proud she's mine. I want everyone to know it. It's also from a Greek word, Strong's 1510, which is a prolonged form of a primary word that means I exist, used only when emphatic, like I exist, yes, with conviction, am or have been. And so then I go, I think about Moses, right? In Exodus 3, when he asks the question, who should I say sent me when they ask? Remember that when Moses is called and he's talking to God in the form of a burning bush? And what does God say to Moses? He says, tell them, I am has sent you. We are connected to the I am. We get back to this word and it's like, it's the I am. The I am has said so. We are children of the I am. Nothing has any power to alter that ever. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this is the ability to perform an action to the extent that there are no hindrances in the way. It is the right to do something or the right over something. So even if something else claims us, like again, I'm thinking of some of my own insecurities, even when I feel like insecurity itself claims me or failure claims me or fear claims me. Like some of those things may try to say they have the right to me, but this right, this authority is greater than any other claim that the world or someone else or past mistakes or past baggage, this is bigger than that. This right trumps any other right. I think about my younger son, Josh, loves to play chess he plays chess sometimes with his older brother. He beats his older brother sometimes. He plays chess with Matt. He plays chess online with other people sometimes. And it's like the checkmate, right? Like you can have done some things wrong as you move around. But if you get to a point where you can do, I don't play chess, but for those of you who do, you maybe I'm saying this right or wrong, but I know at the end, right? Checkmate is good. This is the checkmate. It's like, it doesn't matter what else happened in your life. It doesn't matter what other moves you've made that were smart, not smart. This is the checkmate. Like, this is the thing that wins. And it's always going to win. And the only thing that makes it not win is when we don't remember that it's true. Part three in the investigate step is to read some commentary. Here's a note from Leon Morris. It says, the end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection, but the grace of acceptance. Isn't that beautiful? The end of our story is not the tragedy of rejection, 
but the grace of acceptance, even if, even in the very unlikely scenario that the entire world rejects us, no one wants us, no one claims us, no one is in relationship with us. Even that has to answer to the fact that God says publicly, loudly, proudly, we are his. The Enduring Word also says, faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out for heavenly alms. And that's an Enduring Word quoted by Charles Spurgeon. And then one more from Merrill Tenney, the word, the word children is a parallel to the Scottish born ones, B-A-I-R-N-S, the Scottish bairns, I think, born ones. It emphasizes vital origin and is used as a term of endearment. Believers are God's little ones related to him by birth. So this, so this is saying in the Greek, it's compared to this Scottish word, which means born. We are the born ones. We are the little ones of the most high and holy God. William Barclay has something that I want to read to you. This is kind of longer than a lot of the notes that I share here, but I want to share it with you because I thought it was just so, so good. And this is William Barclay on our response to being sons and daughters of God. Okay, so here it is. There are two kinds of sons or daughters. There is the son who never does anything else but use his home. All through his youth, he takes everything that the home has to offer and gives nothing in return. His father may work and sacrifice to give him his chance in life, and he takes it as a right, never realizing what he is taking and making no effort to deserve it or repay it. When he leaves home, he makes no attempt to keep in touch. The home has served his purpose, and he is finished with it. He realizes no bond to be maintained and no debt to be paid. He is the father's son. To his father, he owes his existence, and to the father, he owes what he is. But between him and his father, there's no bond of love and intimacy. The father has given all in love, but the son has given nothing in return. So that's one response, right? And then William Barclay goes on to say, on the other hand, there is the son who all his life realizes what his father is doing and has done for him. He takes every opportunity to show his gratitude by trying to be the son his father would wish him to be. And as the years go on, he grows closer and closer to his father. The relationship of father and son becomes the relationship of fellowship and friendship. Even when he leaves home, the bond is still there and he is still conscious of a debt that can never be repaid. In one case, the son grows further and further away from the father. In the other, he grows nearer and nearer the father. Both are the sons, and again, or the daughters, right? But the sonship, the childship, is very different. The second has become a son in a way that the first never was. So thank you for allowing me the liberty to read something a little bit longer to you there. But I found so much value in that. Like both of those children have the right but there's this huge difference in their response to the right of being that father's child. And that's what we have too. We have this incredible opportunity to respond to all that the father has poured out, to the, to the right that the father has poured out upon us. Oh, 
So part four in the investigate step is to try to rewrite the verse in her own words. I'm going to go back to the original in the NLT first. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And here's how I rewrote the verse today. I put, from the moment I acknowledged Jesus as Savior and submitted my life to his will, from that very moment, I was given a position and an inheritance that is incorruptible. I am his. No matter what. Step three in the method is to find the character of God. I wrote down a couple of different things. You'll find these prompts on the study sheet if you'd like to learn more about where we get these. I put that he is a father in the purest, best way. He knows me, he claims me, and guides me in what is best. He's a father. He sees where I've messed it up. He sees where I try hard. He sees where I run away from him. He sees when I need to be close to him. He is my father in the best way. I also wrote down for step three, the character of God, that he is a God of good deeds. Even what I resist and don't understand from him, he does because it's good for me. And I finally, I wrote down that he is generous. He doesn't have to claim me. Sometimes I haven't been the easiest or best thing for him to claim, right? Like he's so proud of me or proud that I'm his, that he wants it to be public. But there have been times when it hasn't reflected on him well that I'm his. Ugh, it's so true. I'm not always good for his reputation, but he claims me anyway. Step four is to identify the lie of the enemy. We're looking for that thing, that half-truth, that fear that keeps us from embracing this, living by this, doing this. And here's the lie that I wrote down. It's possible you've done something that negates your right to call him Abba. So Abba is a word that I just love. You may know it's the Aramaic word for father. It's in a couple of different scripture references that I just, just a couple of cross references I want to share with you here. Mark 14, 36 in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In this moment of intense desperation, he calls his father Abba. In Romans 8, 15, it says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. I've heard people say before that Abba is kind of like daddy, like there's this intimacy in it. There's a knowing in it. There's a longing in it. Even there's a connection in it. There's a love in it. We cry, we cry, Abba, Father. And then finally, Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And this lie sometimes is like, well, he might be your father, like that out there father, our father who art in heaven, father. But something you have done negates the right to claim the intimacy of the relationship. And friend, that is a lie. It gets in my heart sometimes. It affects my ability to feel confident that I have this right, that God does claim me, that I'm his no matter what. It gets in the way. And if it gets in the way of your heart today, I just encourage you to call it out and say, uh-uh, this scripture says, if I believe in him, that right is mine. Finally, step five is called, so what? Where we write down a takeaway. And I wrote my takeaway like this. Angie, remember when you're having a day 
that reminds you of the way the world has rejected you, remember to run into the open, warm, loving, generous, good arms of your father, your Abba father. He has the true claim on your heart and your life. You are his, and it is good that you are. I'd love to hear your takeaway if you have one. If you do, email me at steadyonpodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't yet, I would be so appreciative if you would follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever directory you use to listen. It only takes a second. It helps the show a lot, and it guarantees that you'll see every episode as soon as they drop. And I encourage you to tune in on Wednesday for an episode with Troy Hadid. Troy is a fascinating person who uses yoga and world travel travel and long periods of silence to help him understand how to connect with God and with others. And his message of finding identity in Christ alone is our live it out on this verse, John 1, 12. Thank you so much for listening. I pray wherever your day takes you, you are walking in the confident knowledge that you are a beloved, cherished child of God. Peace.